Hi, everybody. It's Michael Angelo Caruso. Welcome back to the Talk to Me podcast. My special guest today is Lynn McLaughlin. Hi, Lynn. Hi, Michael. Thanks Lynn, for having me today. Hey, my pleasure. Uh, I enjoy your company all the time. I am so glad that, that we're connected, and I wanted to talk to you today about your very serious story and your comeback of sorts and um, you've been through something that, that most people would never ever want to go through and you've come to you with flying colors and, and I'm so proud of you. Before we do that I wanted to talk a little bit about your story and, and what you did for the first and major portion of your life. You came up through education, yeah? Absolutely. 31 years, yes, in the education system in several different school boards actually. <laughs> so you're in Ontario, Canada, and the, although the school systems are run a little bit differently there, I imagine it's the same basic premise that you're trying to take kids that come into public school and make champions out of them. And you rose to the status of superintendent. Do I have that right? That's absolutely correct. Superintendent of education in the local school board, serving about 34,000 students. And uh, my specialty area was uh, specialty, or sorry, special education, actually. Special education, yeah. yeah. Uh, which is really, uh, I always thought that those two words, I thought, I've always thought that they didn't do justice to the, to the carriage and the cachet of that status of teacher, because it's such a, hero role it, it, special education it kind of indicates that it's special but special should be in caps or something you know because it's such an unusual <laughs> brand of teaching well with inclusion in ontario really uh, we have students with special needs in in literally every single classroom every single school for sure but every single classroom so it's something near and dear to my heart and something ed every educator has to uh has to uh, learn to support. It's very complex, um, but in the end, it's so worth it because we're making an incredible difference to our students. I'm sure you are. Mm -hmm. uh, you're not retired. You're still in, you've still got your hat in the teaching ring, but something, I don't know if this is what led to the retirement, but you ended up retiring after this incident that we're about to talk, to talk about. Set the stage for us, Lynn. You had a family, a busy lifestyle. Your husband had a very interesting job, and Everything was moving very, very quickly. You talk often about burning the candle at both ends and, and feeling it. Set the stage for us. What was family life like before the incident? I, I like that segue, uh, burning the candle at both ends and in the middle. <laughs> um, so I had, it, I, I had been a school principal for many, many years and just, just had moved into the role of superintendent for my very first year. And as you can imagine, the learning curve is, is really quite extreme. So... I loved it. I loved everything that we were doing, working, getting to know a new team, part of a senior team. Fantastic. My children at the time were 14, 15, and just turning 19, I think, around that time. And uh, the oldest the wonder away, years. Yeah, the wonder years. <laughs> the oldest was away at university, his first year away. And of course, you know, the mom saying that that was a hard adjustment. I was getting through that. The other two, uh, my son, Mitchell, the youngest one, a hockey player, and my daughter was uh, well into basketball, Ontario basketball, school basketball, very, very active. And my husband, a uh, police officer in charge of a shift on the south end of the county, and he was working what we call over here continental shifts. So two on, two off, two days, two nights, it just flip-flopped all the time. So we were, yeah, we were, we're very typical family of you, you just do it. You go, go, go. You do what you have to do and you make it work. Yeah. And then something happened. You started to feel some tears in the, in the fabric. What was going on? 
Well, probably the, the last year that I was a principal and into the first year as a superintendent, I started having some um, physical symptoms that I never actually ever connected. Um, first, it was fatigue. And, you know, given our lifestyle, we just, we just run with it. You just do what you do. Everybody's Everything. tired, right? Yeah. And I had just turned 50 years old. You know, it was part of all of that, too. Um, and then I had some ringing in my left ear. It was diagnosed with tinnitus. Um, no cause. I now know what the cause was, but no cause at that point in time. I started having localized, localized headaches. Um, a headache is an understatement, really migraines, debilitating migraines. But I would pop a couple of Advil and carry on with my day. Right. So again, uh, everybody gets headaches. Everybody's tired. We don't think, you didn't think too much of it. That's um, right. But then right. things escalated. I was having blurred vision, uh, bouts of dizziness where I'd have to sit down and collect my balance, um, and then waking up in the morning and really barely being able to get out of bed is what forced my hand to, to say, this is enough, I need to go get check this out, and I saw the family doctor. Okay, and what did the doc say? So the doc sent me for an MRI, and long story short, um, I dropped my daughter off at the shopping mall with a girlfriend and went for my MRI. Here it was at the local hospital. And uh, as soon as I sat up, they asked me to go to the emergency room. So I think uh, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that you're not getting good news. But I decided I'd just go check it out, find out what was happening and deal with it. And uh, uh, you know, it's a typical emergency room department, any hospital in Canada and the United States, you're surrounded by curtains and people all around you. And the doctor told me in no uncertain terms that um, I had a brain tumor. Wow. I had a brain tumor. So when you when all you of those died and they they sent you, they didn't tell you what was wrong or what they thought was wrong. That had to be an anxious little errand across town. Very much so. Yeah. So they're diagnosticians, really. Really, um, in the MRI department, they're they can't tell you anything anyway. So yeah. they sent me to the doctor, and obviously the report was sent right over. It's all done on the computer now, pretty quickly. So yeah. So the brain tumor. Uh, Never good news. Um, people talk about the size of the tumors, and I've, I've learned it's more, it's also important where the tumor is, the location, how much pressure it's causing. What was your story? Mine was about the size of a golf ball. It was in my temporal lobe. So, um, you, when you, it's the old way we used to be taught if it's something on your left side, it's going to affect your right side. That is very, very true still. Um, but I had ignored the symptoms so long that my, my brain had actually shifted a full centimeter over and there wasn't any place else for it to go. The edema, which is the word they were using, was so extensive that... That's a swelling, they threw, right? Yeah. They threw me on steroids really um, right away before I even left the hospital. And he said it would take about... it would Three weeks, those steroids would shrink that swelling to the point where I would have to have the surgery. Um, and I left... And five days later, saw the neurosurgeon, and we we just did what we had to do. So, did you have the proverbial brain surgery? Yes, it's a craniotomy. I had, and I had to look that up when they said craniotomy, like many of us do when you're thrown into a, the unknown world, right? What does that mean? I actually started watching a YouTube video and shut it off almost right away because I thought, what's the point? I don't need to know what they're going to do. I just have to trust them to do it. Right. For the benefit of the people watching today, uh, and without being too graphic, are we talking about uh, splitting or entering the skull somehow? Yes. 
Yeah. How do they do that these days? Do they drill through it or what? Yes. Well, they cut it open. I, my skull is actually held together by titanium plates today. So they re remove a portion of the skull to go into remove the tumor as much as they possibly can. So. Wow. Wow. And how long ago was the surgery, Lynn? Six years. It was August 7th, 2013. Amazing. Mm -hmm. um, the comeback from this was not easy. Tell us about the challenges that you had. Yeah, so, so I mean, brain surgery is, is brain surgery. Uh, you're in ICU, obviously, right away. There's the side effects afterwards with all of the medications you've been under and anesthesia for eight to nine hours. That alone does a lot to your body. Um, but it was, you know, if you look at all the possible side effects, which included death, I could have lost my speech. I could have lost my mobility. I was very lucky to have a lot of that still with me. But there were periods of confusion, uh, absolutely no memory whatsoever. We had to have a notebook on the counter of the house. So I wouldn't say three different things to three different people and forget that I did it. Yeah. We had post-it notes all over. Don't touch the stove unless someone is with you. Um, yeah, so the, the memory was quite something. My eyesight was, I had three pairs of glasses for about three months. For They varied based on the task I was doing. Um, when I first woke up, I could barely sit up in the bed and I had to, then I, I walked across the room and then down the hall. And when I came home, it was to the end of the driveway. And those little, little goals make a huge difference step by step. Yeah. How long was the recovery or are you still recovering? Uh, well, they say actually uh, two years. It takes two years to get to know the new you because your brain is working in a different way. I went back to work eight months later on a graduated return. So I started three days a week, which was very, very interesting. I can't imagine anyone not doing that because when I went to work, it was, <laughs> you have to laugh in my job. Um, I realized I had forgotten not only short-term memory, I had long-term memory issues and all of the legislation was gone. I didn't remember a thing. Wow. So on the days off, I would tab, 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 because I knew I would never be able to recall it again. I had to find a new way to do things, which we all do throughout our lives. So yeah. those two days off in the middle really helped. And I did that for two full months and then added a day. It was a full year before I was back to work full time. And I was um, job sharing during that period of time when I was back as a graduated return, which was a godsend. Uh, a great lady was a good friend of mine. So we're always grateful when people come back and, and based on what might have gone wrong, you, I mean, you just have to be happy that th things turned out as good as they did. But, but uh, I understand there may, there may be some things that maybe didn't work out the, uh, according to plan A. For example, and I've never asked you this before, did the brain trauma precipitate early retirement? Actually, no, not early retirement. I actually worked one year longer than I could have for a variety of reasons. Okay. But I loved my job. I really did. I mean, at the end, um, when I was when I finally made the decision to retire, it really was um, the conflict. And I thought, okay, I've already had I've already had the wake up call. I already know that I still have a seventeen to twenty percent chance of a recurrence. Um, I love my job, but there's another life out there. And, and I made the decision to retire. And retirement's been wonderful because I've entered this whole new world of entrepreneurship and I'm, I'm loving it. Yeah, and I want to know more about the entrepreneurship. 
I'm glad you retired as a normal person and not as a sick person. Thank you. And, and what, the family, how did they cope with, with what happened? Were there any life lessons for family and for you as a result of the experience? Oh, the life lessons are so, they're so complex. There's so many. Um, part of what I ask people all the time is, why do we wait for crises to actually stop and say, what am I doing? What am I doing wrong? And we should, we should be able to ask ourselves that question every day and just be aware of all those signs around us. So yeah, so many life lessons. I mean, a big one for me was my relationship with my children. I mean, they, they moved into the role of parent very, very quickly as teenagers um, and had to deal with a lot behind the scenes. I didn't share earlier, but I had a period of mania where I was, um, were actually a lot of the things I was doing was quite frightening. It was unpredictable. And my husband and children I know now were having all these sidebar conversations to get through, but they had to figure that out awfully quickly. Yeah. Um, and I now know that I, I had been a very controlling mother before my illness. It took me a little while to figure this out. And my daughter and I specifically, not so much my sons, we had a very combative relationship. I mean, I would say yin, yin, she'd say yang, whatever that expression is. It was just one of those things. And um, we're coming through this together and each of us, I, I say each of us, all of us really found our new selves. Um, she had to grow up a lot faster and I had to accept the fact that all of those things that I didn't like earlier were just, just my daughter growing up like every normal person. And I was trying to be the savior. Oh, I don't like what she's choosing to do today. I'm going to, I'm going to save her as opposed to letting her model through and figure things out. So lots of, lots of lessons with relationships and lots of lessons personal to me about my own belief systems and values, really. You know, my brother uh, had testicular cancer as a young man. He was 19, I was 20, maybe he was 18 and 19. And uh, it was very, very traumatic for him. Thankfully, he survived. He was one of the early survivors of a, of a chemotherapy regime that they were experimenting with back then. He's still, he's still with us today. But I always uh, think about the families, you know, certainly the patient goes through it, but for every patient, there's four or five family members that go through the same basic experience, rooting for you, caring for you, uh, fearing for you. And, uh, and it always warms my heart that people in your family would come through it as stronger individuals that, that somehow it wasn't just you that came through the mist, but it was the family members as well. Congratulations. Thank you. I'll thank them as well. I do every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, any idea what caused the brain trauma? People say cell phones, uh, mm. concussions. Did you play a lot of football in high school? <laughs> no, I was not an athlete. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I write about that in, in the book that I wrote, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a moment. But I, I was on a quest to figure out why. Not, not so much for me, but also I needed to know, was there, was there a hereditary link? Was there something my children needed to worry about? And lo, I'm never going to know the reason why. I mean, the research um, from your, uh, your uh, Fount Brain Tumor Association in the United States and Canada are very, very similar. Um, there's an a mixture of possible environmental and genetic factors, uh, exposure to radiation, to radar. And interesting, I was in the Naval Reserve for several years and I had little bouts of time where I was on the bridge of a of a ship exposed to radar. I can question if that was the cause, but I'll never know. Yeah. In terms of cell phone, the research is overwhelmingly against any support saying there's 
there's a link to um, uh, cell phones. Really, cell phones use a radio frequency. It's not it's not radar, right? Yeah. Um, gonna, but I, I'll never see. Them. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's not going to keep the media from opening up the dialogue every two years like clockwork. Exactly right. But you know what? I still, you, you won't see me hold a cell phone beside my head because of my experience. So I use my earbuds. I use my wireless. I use my, my speech to text. What can it hurt? Yeah. Why take any chances? Exactly right. Yeah. So as part of uh, the recovery and part of therapy, you started to keep a notebook and a journal very common with people that have long-term life-threatening illnesses. This, we get all dramatic. This is going to be my final leave behind. Uh, but, but you didn't have to leave anything behind because you're still with us. One day you, you look at this, uh, this uh, content and think maybe it might help other people. And that's when you decided to publish a book. Is, is that what happened? It was about two years later. Absolutely. And those journals were sitting there in a nice stack. And, you know, the lessons that we learned along the way, not, I mean, about the medical system and coping and support for caregivers and how to navigate all of these surprises that get thrown at you that you can't predict, right? Yeah. How can I help other people? But, but the book took, a, took on its li a life of its own when um, I shared it with my two sisters and said, should I do this or not? And my youngest sister, Colleen, said, uh, oh, it's amazing, Lynn, but you've missed a whole bunch of other things. You've missed everything that was happening back here. And I didn't know what was happening back there. So I said, could you write about one of your experiences? And she did. And um, it, it, there was no question in my mind. I had to have the voices of my family in that book because I didn't, like you just said it earlier, Michael, I didn't go through this alone. We all did it together. So yeah. I asked them. And uh, my, my two sisters, my brother, my father, my father wrote the, about the day of the craniotomy. I still cry every time I read it. Wow. My daughter wrote in there three times. Some of what she writes is a little comical, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, you know, there's, a, there's an old uh, episode of All in the Family. Do you remember the sitcom with Carol O'Connor and Gene Stapleton? I do. And uh, this has been done in many, many formats. There was a movie, a Japanese movie, about a bunch of people witnessed something, and then later they all recount what they see, and no surprise, everybody sees something different. And I suppose it's the same way when mom gets sick. The mom feels it differently and, and remembers it differently than the daughter. The, the, the father of the, the, the woman that's ill remembers it differently or at least have a, a different perspective. And I think, uh, I think what most people kind of, um, uh, what's a good way to say it? Um, we get caught up in who's right and who's wrong. And I don't think that's the way to look at it. It said everybody has a different perspective. And when you have all of those perspectives in the crock pot, the imagery and what really happened becomes truer and, and more legitimate somehow. And uh, your book is, uh, has sold quite well, especially for a first-time effort. Tell us about the book and, and where we can get it and that sort of thing. What's it called? It's called Steering Through It. It's on the shelf behind me. Um, okay. It's interesting coming to that title, but... Uh, um, you can buy it directly from me on my webpage or through Amazon. It's an audiobook file, so Audible. All those links are on on the webpage. Okay. Um, really, very, very proud of it. Um, it's rank, raging, ranking, sorry, at four point nine average on the reviews. Uh, the second edition was just released in August, so that's kind of just getting out there right now. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm pretty proud of it. And the website is lynnmclaughlin.com. Yes, it is. 
So everybody, uh, McLaughlin, uh, let's do Lynn too, because there's fancy spellings these days. It's www.lynnmclaughlin.com. And um, in writing the book, you've discovered, I think, that, that this process of steering through it is something that you could actually teach people and help people with. And, and I don't think you thought about this from a, a revenue-generating point of view. You just, you just wanted to help people. But uh, my opinion is that your presentation has value to people. There are people that go to therapy and, and get counseling for this kind of a thing. I bet there's a huge market for people that want to learn more about how they can steer through it. Um, what are you looking at in terms of helping people? Are you, are you doing uh, coaching sessions? Are you on the speaking circuit? What's happening? Well, in terms of, of uh, your question in the context of my, my injury, um, the speaking circuit, absolutely. Um, I've done some presentations. I shouldn't say presentations. Really, it's a conversation yeah. for um, some local community groups, nonprofit. I've got uh, my next bookings with Rotary. Um, but um, I'm really looking to start doing. When I when I was a superintendent of education, I my gosh, I was in Glasgow. I was in Atlanta. I, I mean, I could speak to 300 people about special education for eight hours. You know, it was just so near and dear to, dear to my heart. Um, so public speaking is something that I find um, very natural, but moving into this realm is a very different kettle of fish. So really it is about, I'm thinking of it as a, as a new start. So looking forward to getting out there, um, uh, keynotes, conferences, breakout sessions, panel discussions, I'm open to all of it. Really what is about helping people. Coaching, yeah. Pardon me? What about one-on-one -on -one coaching? One-on-one -on -one I'm doing... Um, um, if you go to the webpage, the one-on-one -on -one that I've started uh, in terms of, of my job, my new, my new company is for new authors. I say new authors because if you're, I mean, I've published one book, I'm about to publish, publish my second one. It's coming out in the spring, but if you're someone who's published six or seven books, I'm not going to be able to help you. But if you're someone like me who tried to figure things out themselves for a year and a half, I, I'm trying to prevent people from having to do that themselves. So um, I'm offering a 20-minute free consultation. We just chat like you and I are. I'd like to know what it is you're looking for and if I can help you. Um, I've developed a four-module course, um, and we can talk about whether or not that's, your, that's something that would work for you. And if it's not, I'll, I'll try to direct you to someplace or someone that can. Lovely. Just warms my heart that, that, you, that you made it through the rain, as Barry Manilow used to sing, and, and now you're showing other people how to get through it. Um, uh, I'm wondering too um, about education now, because you said that you came from education and now you're still educating. Um, I'm wondering about the state of education. How do you feel about the biggest problems facing education educators today? Mm -hmm. uh, it's a complicated mess, man. There's a lot of things going on. It's, if you were in charge of everything, what would you tackle first? Yeah. Wow. That is a huge question. Do we have another hour or two? Um, I think the biggest problem with education is, and I can speak for here in Canada and Ontario, it's linked to politics, oh. right? I mean, I don't see any way of us getting around that anytime soon, but you have a change of government. Everything's on hold. Re-rejig, rejig, rejig. Everything's on hold for quite a long time. And then, you know, what was working and what we were moving on is taken back or changed. Or, I mean, the opposite happens too. Some wonderful things are brought in, but it's always a period of transition. 
It's always a period of transition. And the other piece that, you know, is so, so complex is schools have become um, the solution. Um, It's, it's the social networking place. It's where all of the, all of the children are coming in and the families are coming in. So, so teachers are not just teaching anymore. Um, We're branching out into things like counseling and, um, and, we have social workers in schools now. We, we have children who are traumatized. We have parents who are traumatized. We have gener- generational poverty. We're feeding children breakfasts and lunches, and we should be. We should be doing all of that. But it's a lot of pressure on the education system. It is. It sure and, is. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, we have similar problems and challenges in the United States, and um, hopefully good, good, strong educators like you will help us figure it out one day. I am so impressed with your journey and, and, and what you've been through and how you've come through it. I'm so glad that you're helping other people. Um, I can't wait to see you in action more and more and more, not only on the speaking circuit, but also in the bookstores with your new title. Uh, it's Lynn McLaughlin, everybody. She's a fellow Rotarian, a fellow author, and uh, just a, a great person. I'm so glad we know each other, Lynn. Thank you for being with us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. I look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Talk To Me podcast. Please comment down below. Let us know what you want to see more of. And be sure to subscribe so that you can uh, download new episodes. You can also um, listen on the Talk To Me podcast. You can watch the video version on YouTube. Thanks, Lynn. Thank you. Take care.